If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 14 today. Um, also, for, uh, for, I'm sorry about the lag on the screens, especially when we're singing a new song. I know that was painful for, for some of us. But um, if you see a, a lag on the screens, just know um, it's a technology issue we're working through. So um, where am I going? 1 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 14 today, we are, we've been in a series in the book of 1 Samuel, just working our way through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, and so we will begin today by, by reading all of chapter 14 today, which um, for, if, if for you that is a lot of scripture, well, it is a lot of scripture. It's like, what, 50 or so verses. Um, and so, um, but the reason why we do this is um, when we're going through a, an Old Testament narrative, a story, it's important for us to get the the whole story um, and not just a, a small little chunk. And so we want to read the whole thing and let God's word speak. Um, and, and we recognize that reading scripture uh, is God's very own words and they're more important than anything I, would, I could say afterwards. Um, and so we just want to take a few minutes and, and read through that today. Um, and I, uh, just so you know, I, I normally like to use my, my, my actual real Bible, but uh, today's passage is a, is a little clunky. Um, and the structure is, it's just, it's strange for my brain. So I'm using our little First uh, uh, Samuel journals today. Um, if you wonder what this is, this mysterious thing I'm reading from. Um, so First Samuel chapter 14 today. Here's what God's word says. I'll read it all and then we'll jump on in. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of, at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, the, uh, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose to the, on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after, the, after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. 
Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Then the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, uh, let us draw near to God. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. For there was not a, a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all of Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in my son, Jonathan, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in the people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped.
Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimez. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner and the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us today through his word. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, which you have written for us through human authors and preserved for us. And you tell us that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us. It reads us as we read it. And so Lord, as we dive into 1 Samuel 14 today, we ask that you would teach us that you would convict us where we need it, that you would lift up our hearts and encourage us where we need it. But God, most of all, that you would open our eyes that we might see you more clearly today. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in ninth grade, I, um, I had a crush on a girl that I wanted to ask out to our... Um, homecoming dance. Now, this was kind of um, the time text messaging was like really coming onto the scene. Um, that kind of gives you, I guess now you're trying to figure out how old I am. Te text messaging is coming onto the scene. Like I had a phone and I was like, you know what? I have this crush on this girl. I'm going to text her and I'm going to ask her to come to homecoming dance with me. And so I was determined to do that. And I pulled out my phone and I sent out this beautifully crafted text message, at least what I thought was beautifully crafted. And I sent it into the cloud or wherever it goes to go to the, this girl's phone and I asked her out and I waited eagerly for her response and she responds by saying, are you seriously asking me out over a text message? <laughs> to where I freaked out and thought, how do I get out of this? I must cover up my tracks. And I said, ah, uh, no, my friend stole my phone. He did it for me. So do you not want to ask me out? No, I do, but I would have done it in person, surely. It was, it, was a, it was a learning lesson for me. Thankfully, it didn't ruin my chances because she ended up being my wife and she's <laughs> sitting here today and she said yes. But I learned a valuable lesson that day. I discovered that day that there, there is a right way and a wrong way to ask a girl out. And it is not through text message. 
I learned that that day. And, and um, we've probably all learned these lessons throughout our lives that there's often a right way to do something and a wrong way to do something. I'm actually a very firm believer that there is usually a right way to do something. Um, but I, I, I see that in my own life. I, I believe that there is a right way to load the dishwasher. Right? There is a wrong way and there is a right way. There is a right way to install a new roll of toilet paper and there is a wrong way to do it. Okay? It must flow over. Um, there's a right way to do things. There's a right way to order a steak, right? And that's medium rare. Not well done. Uh, there's a right way to order a pizza and it's with pineapple on top. Okay? So I, I, there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And, and the author of 1 Samuel, as, you, as we've been going through this book, you've probably picked up, he likes to communicate a lot through comparison through comparing one thing to another thing or one person to another person. And, and in today's chapter, he com he's comparing Jonathan, the son, and Saul, the king. But more than just comparing two people, he's comparing and contrasting two different ways of approaching God. One which is a right way and one which is a wrong way. And so as he compares these two, we're going to see there's, there's really two ways to approach God. And, and through King Saul, we're going to see there's one way to approach God and that's through religious activity. Just kind of trying to do all the religious right things in order to earn God's favor. And if I can somehow do enough of those things, God will be pleased with me and he'll give me success. Or there's another way, which is the way we see Jonathan approach God, and that's through faith. Through faith in who God has said that he is and who God uh, is and what he's done. And there's two ways of approaching him, either through religious activity or through trust in who he is. And that remains for us today. Two ways to approach God. We can either approach God and try to impress him with our moral behavior or our religious rituals to try to earn his favor, or we can approach him by trusting in who he said that he is and what he has done. And in fact, we'll see today in Saul's life that being religious without having faith in Christ is worthless. As we close chapter 13 last week, we came to this scene where the, the army of the Philistines is showing up in force against the people of Israel. They're surrounding them on every side, vastly outnumbering them. And in fact, the people of Israel don't have any metal weapons, okay? They're just left to kind of figure out something to use, you know, like a, I don't, a, a broom or a, a tablecloth or just like whatever you can do, right? So hopefully they have like Matt Damon and, you know, Jason Bourne on their side to figure out creative weaponry, but they're, they're surrounded by all the Philistines who vastly outnumber them and have way more military strength than they do. In fact, we're told here that, that Israel's down to about 600 men and no weapons and they're cornered. And we're left asking as we close 1 Samuel chapter 13, how in the world are they going to be saved? They are going to be absolutely destroyed by this army that's way stronger than them. They have no advantages whatsoever. How are they going to be saved? What is going to happen? What is God going to do? And we see at the beginning of chapter 14 what God is going to do. And we see it in the person of Jonathan. And in, and in Jonathan's story, we're going to see his heart of faith and how he approaches the Lord through faith and not through religion. As we open 14, we see uh, a focus on Jonathan, the son of Saul, who's uh, in leadership in, in, in Saul's army. And he wants to do something. He is sick and tired of just waiting 
and doing nothing. Because Saul, the, the king of Israel, is just sitting there. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know how to fight against these people. He doesn't know what kind of advantage to seek out. He doesn't, know, he doesn't really know the Lord, so he doesn't know what to do. And so they're just sitting there doing nothing. And it tells us that they're kind of surrounded by this, um, this mountain structure that's made it too difficult for anyone to cross. So the Philistines don't want to cross in advance. The Israelites obviously don't want to do anything. And so they're just sitting there and nothing's happening. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, is like, I am sick and tired of just sitting here. I, I, I want to do something. I want to I move towards something and do something. And so he's tired of just sitting idly by when, when he believes God wants to give them victory because if you are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you know that God has actually told his people over and over and over again, if you follow me, if you trust me, if you obey me, I will deliver you from your enemies. And so Jonathan's sitting there like, we've been told this, like, what are we doing? We're just sitting here. And Jonathan takes his armor bearer and he says, let's go do something. And I think there's something for us in that where as God's people, we are meant to be an active people. Yes, surely sometimes we are called to wait on the Lord, but we are called to be an active people that are taking ground and moving and not just sitting and waiting for something to happen. We are called to be a, 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 a forward moving people because of who our God is. If you're familiar with the movie uh, Moana, it's a really great kids Disney movie that's also for adults. Uh, my missional community group knows I have a real love for the movie Moana. Um, but there's this scene in, in this movie Moana, if you're not familiar with it, it's this, this island dwelling people um, and they're stuck on this island and it's surrounded by this decaying reef around them where they're, they're running out of fish and they're running out of produce um, and they're faced with this dilemma of like, we need to leave the reef and go beyond the reef, but it's too scary, it's too treacherous out there, so we'll just stay here. And it takes this, this young girl, this, this, is she a princess? I don't know. Uh, where she decides, I'm going to go beyond the reef. And she goes and it like destroys her. And anyways, she sets off, the whole movie is her journey. And, and the, the, it kind of climaxes, uh, one of the climaxes is she discovers that her people used to be voyagers. She discovers all these boats that were hidden away. And she has this moment where she's, she discovers who their people are. They're like, we, we've always been voyagers. We've always been a people that go beyond the reef and discover new territory and find new land. This is who we are. This is what we do. And we've forsaken that. Now we just sit on this island and we do nothing. And the whole movie turns by her remembering who they are as people. They are voyagers. They're ones that go explore. And she rescues, and the story, it's amazing, it's beautiful, and it's, it's, it's great. And that's what we're called to as God's people. We, we're voyagers. That's always been who we are. A people that move and go and take ground and, and spread the gospel and make disciples and plant more churches and, and go to the corners of the earth where no one else wants to go. And yet, so many of us are just sitting, doing nothing. That's somebody else's job. And here we see in Jonathan, Jonathan's tired of sitting around. It's a real picture for us of what we're called to as believers. In fact, here's what one person says. Better for Christians to act daringly, acknowledging that the possibility, even the certainty of failure should the Lord not help, but knowing that God is often pleased to bless bold initiative in faith. Man, how much better for us to err on the side of being too bold. Of like, man, yeah, I, this seemed like something the Lord might have been into and I went for it and it just failed miserably. Better to be there than to just be sitting idly. 
Because as we read the, read the stories of the scriptures, we see that God often loves to see that kind of faith in his people. And this is what Jonathan does. And we see the great faith of Jonathan and it's rooted in the fact that he knows who God is and he knows what God has told his people. And he comes up with this ridiculous, like a ridiculous plan. Okay, we see it here in, in verse four. It tells us there's these two crags, right? Of a mountain, this rocky crag. And they translate as this, slippery and thorny. And they have to cross over those in order to get to the Philistines. And Jonathan's like, that sounds like a great plan to me. Just for me and my armor bearer. This is kind of an insane plan. And Jonathan has this amazing line, maybe the best line in the chapter, right? Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Meaning these are God's enemies. We are God's people. Let's go after them. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So good. What a beautiful word from Jonathan. Right, that God will save by many or by few. He believes that, God, that salvation is by God's grace and by his power, not by circumstances or advantages. And man, maybe some of us just, do we just need to hear that word this morning? That God can save and will save by many or by few. Regardless of circumstances and how they look or resources that I have, God is for his people. And he will bring us through by many or by few. And it's what we see in the gospel, that God saves through impossible odds. We were enemies with God, no hope of salvation. And yet through a poor man in Nazareth, salvation comes as he dies on a cross and is buried. Oh, but then he raises. Right? We see this in the gospel that God saves through impossible means. And it's what Jonathan believes here. And he comes up with this ridiculous plan. And it's this inspiring faith where his armor bearer has this amazing line where he says, I am with you heart and soul. Right? That this armor bearer is so inspired by the boldness and the faith and confidence Jonathan has in who God is that he says, I'm with you heart and soul. Another way of communicating that is, I am with you in the same way that your own heart is with you. We, I am with you in this. Let's go. And it, it reads so simply to us, but this, I mean, this is, this, is like a, this is like a Marvel movie or like a, a Mission Impossible movie where like these two dudes, I mean, they don't, they're not great military men. They, I mean, the it, people of Israel are not a military, they're not, compared to the Philistines, they're nothing. And, and Jonathan and his armor bearer start climbing. It tells him with his hands and feet, they are climbing over these rocky crags, slippery and thorny, to go before the Philistines. Just the two of them. No army behind them. Jonathan's got one weapon. It's amazing. And they move forward. And Jonathan wasn't a fool in the process. He actually leaves the door open that maybe God doesn't want to do this. He's got this bold faith, but he's not a fool. He doesn't just think God's going to bless anything I do. He's, he's just going to, whatever my plan is, he's just going to bless it. No, he actually leaves the door open for like, maybe the Lord doesn't want to do this because he says, here's the plan. We'll go show ourselves to the Philistines. A ridiculous military plan, right? We'll show ourselves. Remove the surprise. Here we are. And if they say, stay there, let us come to you, then we know, okay, the, Lord's, the Lord doesn't want us to do this. But if they invite us, then we'll know the Lord has delivered them. 
into our hands. And it's probably this situation where they get to come up and be in this narrow space to where numbers aren't that much of an advantage and they can fight and kill the Philistines. And so they leave the door open for the Lord to speak and he does. And they kill 20 people that day, which is amazing. They kill 20 people and then the Lord responds by trembling the earth and there's a great panic. You remember uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about how um, in, in ancient culture, it was often considered when, when, when two nations were fighting, it wasn't just the nations that were fighting, it was their gods that were also fighting. And any kind of pheno natural phenomenon that happened during battle was taken uh, by the people as the gods are doing something. And so if the earth trembled against the Philistines, that would have freaked them out. That not only is, are the people winning against us, but their God is thundering against our gods. And that's what God does here in this small little battle where Jonathan and his armor bearer take out 20 Philistines. Then they're, they're freaking out like, what's going on? How is this happening? And then the earth quakes and they're thrown into a great panic because they realize, oh my gosh, the God of the Israelites is thundering against us. And they're trembling. And all of this action on Jonathan's part is driven by a deep trust in who Yahweh is, in who God is. What he said he will do. That's Jonathan. Now catch the difference in Saul as we continue in verse 16. Saul sees this going on and he sees that there's a panic and realizes somebody must be over there fighting. Who is it? And they discover, oh, it's his son who went over alone and is causing this great panic. And Saul sees this and he sees an opportunity to fight against the Philistines. They're, they're panicking, they're scurrying, like let's go after them. But he knows he's not supposed to do that without the, the priest giving an address first. In fact, this actually comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. I want to look at this. This is amazing. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is, this is God's law and instruction for warfare to his people. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priests shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, Today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. I think Jonathan remembers that, which is why he goes. And Saul's like, oh, they're panicking. Let's go too. Oh, but oh, yeah, the, the priest, he's got to do the address thing. Go get the priest. Bring him over here. And he brings him, and we're told of who this priest is. And if you remember the beginning of 1 Samuel, you know it's bad news because the priest is a man named Ahijah who's from the cursed house of Eli, and he's the nephew of Ichabod, whose name means the glory has departed. So we just know, okay, this is not a good priest. This is not going to go well for Saul. But he calls the priest over. And the priest starts, uh, he has his ephod, and in the ephod we see reference later in this chapter something called the Urim and the Thummim. There's thoughts about what this is. We don't know fully what this is, but it's some way of determining how the Lord is speaking and what he's saying. Is this the Lord's will? Is it not the Lord's will? There's some thoughts of maybe it's two different stones that are inside the ephod. What we need to know is it was a way for the people, the priest, to know which way is the Lord speaking. Is he saying yes? Is he saying no? Is he saying nothing? And so he calls the priest in and he starts discerning what's the Lord's will. Should we go after them? And as Saul observes the panic, he tells the priest, so, stop, 
Like, stop trying to figure out what God's saying. We're losing our advantage. Let's go after the people. This is, I mean, unprecedented in all of Scripture. No one stops God from speaking. This is what Saul does. He says, priest, no, 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 no. Don't do that anymore. We're losing our advantage. We need to go. He silences the voice of God because what we see in Saul's life is to Saul, victory is always more important than obedience. Victory is always more important for obedience. His feelings are always more important than God's clear commands. What do I feel like I need to do? It feels like we're losing our advantage that we have. I know I'm supposed to wait on the Lord, but I, that doesn't feel right because I'm losing my advantage. Let's forget what the Lord has said and go after the people. His feelings are always more important than God's clear commands. In other words, he, he views it like this. I'll do the religious actions until they aren't working for me anymore. And then I'll do what I think is best. And so they pursue after the Philistines and they actually have victory over them. In fact, verse 22, we see this. All the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country heard that the Philistines were fleeing, so they too followed hard after them in battle. And the Lord saved Israel that day which is the grace of God. That God would bring salvation through a hero, even for the hiding ones. Even for the ones that were too scared to be in battle. The Lord brings salvation to them. And so they have victory, but Saul wants to keep going. He wants to wipe out the Philistines. He sees this advantage and so he wants to keep going. And so he comes up with this plan starting in verse 24. He comes up with this vow and it's a, it's a way for Saul to figure out how can I get the God, God's favor again? How can I get the Lord's favor back on my side? And he comes up with this vow where they're kind of in the midst of pursuing the Philistines and he says, if anyone eats anything until I, until I am avenged against my enemies, you'll be killed. And for Saul, it's this way of how, how do I secure the Lord's favor? Oh, here, here, here's this plan. Here's this vow I can come up with. Increased devotion, forced fasting on the people until he is avenged on his enemies. And so the people are starving. They see this dripping honey and they haven't eaten. In, in, in ancient battle, uh, they, meals aren't provided for, for soldiers. They have to fend for themselves. And so they see honey and it's like, this is our chance. But because of Saul's vow to get the Lord's favor somehow, they can't eat. But Jonathan comes in, having not heard the vow, takes a little bit of the honey, eats it, and it says his eyes were brightened. Yeah, no duh. They're starving. And it's delicious honey. It fills him up. It, it strengthens him up. And everyone comes around saying, Jonathan, you just like broke your dad's vow. He's going to kill you. And Jonathan says this, my father has troubled the land. Essentially, this was foolish of him to say. He's troubled the land, which is actually a phrase that was used in the book of Joshua for a man named Achan who when they were plundering the, the land of Jericho stole consecrated items and, and hid them. And God came and said, there's someone that's troubled the land. And it was Achan and he was put to death. And that's what Jonathan says of his father, the king. He's troubled the land. Jonathan says it would have been better to eat and have strength to destroy the enemy further. Because Jonathan knows what we all know and what Snickers knows. That you're not you when you're hungry, right? We need some food. Hey, 
being hangry is, a, is not a good thing for anyone. Jonathan's just like, if we would have eaten, we'd have had more strength, we would have kept pursuing, it would have been better. But now the defeat against the, uh, the Philistines will not be great because of the foolishness of my father. And so Saul's force, Saul forces this religious activity on the people as a way to gain God's favor. And so they don't eat honey. And then as they keep going, they find some, some, some animals to consume and eat. And the people are so famished that they just slaughter the animals and they start eating it with the blood, which is a no-no. Blood belongs to the Lord. It was in his law that you're not to eat of the blood. And so somebody comes to Saul and he's like, Saul, this is a problem. The people are disobeying. And Saul's like, oh, oh yeah, they're eating the blood. Okay, that's bad, right? Yeah, okay, that's a bad thing. They shouldn't do that. And he sets up an altar so that they can do it properly and let the blood run out and not eat it. But here's what happens in this moment is Saul's forced religious activity on everyone leads the people to be meticulous to follow Saul's made up law and careless to obey God's clear laws. Because of his his view towards the Lord, I must, simply I must just do some kind of activity to get him to be pleased with us. It's caused the people to be meticulous to obey that, but careless to follow God's laws, which is exactly what religion does. It elevates man-made laws over God's clear instruction. We see it all throughout the scriptures. In fact, this is what Jesus told the Pharisees. He says, you have made void the words of God for your traditions. You've elevated your traditions, your man-made rules over the clear words of God. And in doing so, you've made the word of God void in favor of your traditions. And so Saul freaks out. He's like, he knows this is bad to, dis to disobey God. Now, either Saul didn't know that people weren't supposed to eat the blood or he wasn't a, a good enough leader to care and make sure they weren't eating the blood. I don't know which one's worse. worse. They're both bad. And so he works to fix it and he wants to continue pursuing the Philistines. And the people say, do what seems good to you, which is kind of Saul's life motto. And the priest says, basically, we need to pray first. And so they go to inquire of God again, except God isn't answering Saul this time, maybe because Saul silenced him last time. And Saul realizes the, the religious rituals aren't working. Something's going on. Maybe there's some sin in our camp. And he, he's actually right about that. It's his own. And they cast lots to figure out what, what's going on, what's happened. And it, the lot falls on Jonathan. Jonathan, what have you done? Oh, I, I, uh, I ate some honey. Kill me. I, th I think there's some sarcasm in there. Maybe not. And in that moment, Saul vows another vow. And he vows, I'm gonna, as uh, sure as the Lord lives, I will kill you, Jonathan, for doing this, even though you're my son. And check this. Saul doesn't show that kind of fervor or passion for the people that were sinning by eating the blood. But he shows that kind of fervor and commitment to defend his own man-made loss and kill his own son to defend it. This is Saul. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he said. He doesn't know how to approach him. And so all he's got is religious activity. And when it doesn't work, he doesn't know what to do. 
And the people intercede and ransom Jonathan, which is fascinating. Because here's the king that should be fighting for his people, ransoming them from the Philistines, and said the people have to ransom Jonathan from the king. It's all about Saul. And he lost all respect that day. See, what we see in Saul, Saul has no real deep desire to follow God or for his people to do so. He's only concerned with following God when it threatens his safety or his success. And friends, that's where religion gets you. Following God will always just be a means to an end. But I want to ask this question, how did Jonathan get like this? How did Jonathan get to this place of being so different from his father? How did Jonathan get here? Well, the book of Romans tells us this, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we know for Jonathan, the only way that he could have faith is by hearing about who God is and what he's done. He seems to know who God is and what he has said. He doesn't just muster up faith out of nowhere. It has to come from hearing. That's why there was such a focus from God to his people. Don't forget, remember what I've done. Remember what I've said. Remember who I am. And so maybe Jonathan remembers what we read in Deuteronomy. Maybe Jonathan remembers what God has done for the people of Israel in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. Maybe Jonathan remembers the battle of Jericho where God just told his people to walk around a city and he crumbled the walls down by many or by few. Or maybe Jonathan remembers the story of Gideon, which is so similar to this story. If you remember the story of Gideon where Gideon is, is coming against his enemies and he has 33,000 people in his army and God's like, nah, that's too many. Let's dwindle that down. Dwindles it down to about 22,000. Nah, it's not good enough dwindles it all the way down to 300 men. 300 men, by many or by few. And goes against his enemies. And in, as this is happening, Israel's hiding, just like they are here. Just like it is in this story, it's a really unlikely victory, and yet God brings victory through few. Just like in this story, all the enemies turn on themselves and start fighting themselves and killing each other. And just like in this story, when Gideon works victory by few, when the Lord works it by few, all the army follows and all of a sudden gets bravery when they see that God is defeating his enemies. Maybe Jonathan remembers that story and says, if God did it then, maybe he'll do it now. Faith comes through hearing. Saul has seemingly never surrendered to God as his king. He's only tried to strong arm him. He's never surrendered. He's never really grasped God's covenant promise to his people. I don't think he knows the Lord. And so everything, everything that he's called to do is subject to his filter. Do I want to do this? Does this make sense to me? Does it feel good to me? Does it feel right to me? And God's favor is just a means to an end for him. Success and comfort, victory. But for Jonathan, we see this truth that faith comes through hearing and faith leads to boldness and bravery. And for us, faith comes through hearing the gospel. 
Because in the gospel, we see most clearly who God is and what he's done and how we are saved. If we want to be a people that have faith to trust him and to move forward by many or by few, that faith only comes through hearing. It doesn't come through increased effort, increased passion, better discipline, better boundaries. It comes through hearing the word with faith, hearing the gospel message with faith. You and I can either put our trust in how we can impress God or put our trust in what he has done. And the gospel message tells us we are sinners deserving of death and yet God came. In his mercy, he sent Jesus to live a perfect life in our place, to die the death that we deserved and invites us to repent of our sins and trust in him based off of no improvement, no earning of our own, no striving, just surrender to him, throwing ourselves on him, saying, I have nothing to offer. I can do nothing. I can't impress you. I can't earn your favor. You've done everything I needed and throw ourselves on him in surrender and be saved. Because approaching God through religion and approaching him through faith in the gospel are life-changingly different. Tim Keller has come up with a, a, a real helpful way of distinguishing these two. He says this, he says, religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But when we're, we have faith in the gospel, it's I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion produces this, a prayer life that is mostly only petition and heats up in a time of need because the main purpose of prayer is to control the environment. But when we have faith in the gospel, our prayer life consists of praise and adoration because the main purpose is fellowship with this good God. Religion produces this identity where, where, where our self-worth is based mainly on how hard we work or how moral we are. And so therefore we have to look down on those that we perceive to be lazy or immoral. Whereas when we have faith in the gospel, our identity and our self-worth are centered on the one who died for us. We are saved by sheer grace. Therefore, we know we can't look down on those who practice something different than us because it's only by grace that I am who I am. It's life-changingly different. We see it over and over in this story because for those that are trusting in religion, when you're criticized, you'll be furious or devastated because it'll be critical to you to think that you are a good person. But when you've put your faith in the gospel, when you're criticized, you'll probably still struggle, but it won't be essential for you to think that you're a good person because you know that you are accepted and loved based not on your performance, but on the performance of Christ in your place. Saul just continued with religion and it actually led to inaction. He was sitting idle. He was busy because religion will keep you busy, but you'll be on a treadmill. You won't actually get anywhere. It will be inaction. But through faith in the gospel, like we see in Jonathan, it leads to action. There's only one way to approach the Lord and it's through faith in the gospel, not through religious activity. And I think that there are many who think they're following Jesus, but they've never stopped trusting in themselves.
There are many who are self-centered and exhausted and are spending a lifetime trying to earn God's favor but are never finding it and just want God's stuff. And many of those people, I believe, are sitting in church every week serving and praying and helping others and being really moral. But there's been no surrender towards Christ. And they're still relying on their works or their strong efforts or their moral improvement or their devotion or their kindness to impress God. And it's not faith in Jesus. It's just religiosity. And there's no salvation there. I think Saul probably genuinely thought he would get the Lord's favor through what he was doing. But look at what Ephesians chapter two says. There's no room for us to boast because Ephesians chapter two says this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath by, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is my prayer that even among us, that there may be some of us that are, are realizing that we've been trusting in our own efforts and in our own performance to get God to love us. It's my hope and my prayer that he's stirring that in us to surrender that and to lay that down and to have the humility to say, yeah, that's been me, even if I've been going to church for 15 years. Throw everything on Christ and be saved. That's the call for us. And you know, as this chapter closes, it, it closes with this kind of summary of Saul and all these military victories he'd have. You see, for Saul, the problem was rarely on the battlefield. It was in his heart. Because I think Saul's greatest downfall was at every turn, he just resorts to displays of religiosity, which only serve to keeping his heart open from humble repentance. It just covered it up. Because that's the invitation that religion gives. Religion says this, gives you this challenge of be devoted and dangles this carrot of reward for you if you can accomplish it. But the gospel, the free gift of God through Jesus, it gives the invitation of repentance. Come, surrender, repent, and the promise of forgiveness, the promise of blessing. May we as a church not fall into the trap of religion, but come to him through faith. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, it is so sad for us to see the king Saul, the first king of Israel, just fail so miserably to not even know you, not even seemingly know your heart or your commands or who you are and what you do. And yet, God, in him, we see so much of ourselves, a forgetful people, a people prone to trust more in our hands than in you. Lord, we want to surrender that at your feet this morning. Even if we've surrendered that already, we, we surrender it again and again and again. We can do nothing. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Would you stir faith in our hearts again today? Faith to be bold and to trust you and to move forward. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.